Hello, Music the Lifeblood listeners. Do you want to help the show? Head over to Patreon.com to donate to Music the Lifeblood so you can keep Music the Lifeblood rocking and receive some badass perks. That's www.patreon.com backslash Music the Lifeblood. And as always, you can find Music the Lifeblood on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see all the posts from the guys, including Dustin's Vinyl Thursday videos. Don't forget, Metal Chris and Dustin love seeing your ratings and reviews on iTunes. Music the Lifeblood, something old, something new. What are you listening to? Hey, this is Johnny Kelly from Typo Negative, and you're listening to Music the Lifeblood. Sitting around with time to kill If we don't do it then no one will Our eyes are cold, our thoughts are low Fifteen minutes till we lose control You are now listening to Music The Lifeblood generation behind Going nowhere's just fine Maybe tonight's a night we die Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Music the Lifeblood. This is an extra, ultra, mega special edition. Why? Because Johnny Kelly, that's why. For those of you that don't know, Johnny Kelly was the longtime drummer for Typo Negative and is currently with Danzig, Seventh Void, A Pale Horse Named Death, and Kill Devil Hill. This guy has an impressive resume as well as an awesome sense of humor and humility. I had the distinct pleasure of talking with Johnny at length about everything from his first Led Zeppelin record, his amazing output in Typo Negative and his work with Danzig and beyond. So sit back and enjoy part one of Music the Lifeblood's awesome conversation with the badass Johnny Kelly. On the phone, I am joined with Johnny Kelly. John, thanks for being on the show, man. How's it going? Thanks for having me. We, we spend a lot of time on Music the Lifeblood talking about what we're passionate about, the music we're listening to, and things like that. And I wanted to talk about Led Zeppelin with you. Uh, okay. Um, I know that you do you do the Earl's Court uh, Zeppelin uh, tribute project on the side, and I wanted to kind of talk about your fandom. Do you do you bow at the altar of John Bonham, so to speak? Well, since I was a kid. What was the Zeppelin record that really grabbed you? Well, uh, when I was a kid, my father played a big role in my uh, I guess my musical upbringing. You know, he was pretty young at the time. He only uh, he was only nineteen when I was born. So when when uh, a lot of like you know this classic rock now is was popular, you know, he's uh, a young guy into all of it. And when I was old enough, when I had a, a sense of awareness about you know music and rock and roll and things like that, I was just constantly like uh, raiding his record collection. And uh, he had two Zeppelin records. He had uh, Zeppelin Two and Houses of the Holy. Nice. And when I heard them. I was completely blown away. Even as a kid, you know, I was just, you know, just, you know, consumed with it and stuff. And um, my mother's, uh, when we lived in Brooklyn, it was when I was a kid, we uh, we lived in a two-family house, mother-daughter house, and my grandparents lived upstairs in my uncle's. And my uncle was uh, younger than my, my parents, and uh, he played guitar, and he was into all this, you know, all that stuff, too. So when... When I found his record collection, <laughs> I found all of Led Zeppelin, the, the, the rest of the Led Zeppelin records. Nice. Awesome. And uh, I just remember, like, you know, just sitting in my bedroom with my headphones on, you know, listening to them you know, constantly. And uh, uh, a guy a guy lived up the block from us. He taught me how to play play drums initially. 
you know, gave me a few lessons and stuff. And I remember bringing all the all the Zeppelin records to his house saying, I want to play this. And I handed him all the records. I said, I want to learn how to play like this. And it just, you know, it, it just stayed with me. You know, like, uh, you know, going through all, like, you know, different kinds of music and stuff as a teenager, as a teenager and uh, things like that. I was always a big uh, Led Zeppelin and Black Top. Did you initially come off, you know, just kind of emulating what Bonham was doing? Or was, did it start at a young age you were able to, you know, kind of start playing your own style? Did you develop it right away? You know, how, how did that, how did you branch off? Well, I think it was, uh, you know, as, as a kid, too, I was a huge Kiss fan. Just like pretty much everybody else in the world. <laughs> and um, when I first started playing, I was more into like a, like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and uh, Motley Crue and, you know, things like, you know, like that kind of music really, really made an impression on me. And I wasn't so much into classic rock as I was, like, you know, like more into, like, you know, metal, things like Saxon and Accept. Um, so I think it was more later on, like a little bit later on in music, but like, you know, after, you know, uh, I was a big Metallica fan, big Overkill fan, and a lot of these things I was, focusing more on with my playing, you know, learning how to play double bass, and, you know, all like thrash metal and things like that. Things, the, the musical climate had changed a little bit. Things got a little bit more, um, more back to like, I guess, like, you know, classic rock. And, uh, I started really, uh, focusing on my playing like that. I started playing, when we were teenagers, I played in a band with Kenny from Typo. Right. And uh, we were playing, like, you know, like, I guess, yeah, it's like, you know, thrash metal, speed metal and stuff. And then I started, uh, I wound up playing in a band with my uncle who lived upstairs from me. And that was more uh, blues-based, more like, I started getting into more, you know, more other classic rock, like, you know, went back to other things, things like Zeppelin, Aerosmith, uh, Leonard Skinner. And then I started, was really a big fan of the Black Crows. And things like that, it started changing more, it, that had a really big impact on my playing. I was starting to, you know, get into more of that. And then I really jumped into the whole, you know, the whole bottom thing. I guess, like, revisiting it, I was really a big fan of it as a kid, but, you know, kind of, you know, went into a different direction with my playing, and then went back to it, and I was able to have a better understanding about, like, you know, what John Bottom was doing drum-wise. And songs, and then I was taking those, trying to take those principles and trying to apply it to what I was doing. Right. You strike me as a as a drummer that uh, that doesn't have any doesn't have a problem underplaying. I think a lot of drummers get into the habit of just doing as much as they can as often as they can. Yeah, that's that. No, I, I don't subscribe to that at all. Why not? Uh, I I approach a song. You know, playing wise, I approach it more about the song than it is. You know, what can I, you know, what can I put in, you know, note wise? You know, how many notes can I put in here? And you know, I, I don't want it. I'm more interested in a really solid song than I am, you know, listen to that great drum track. <laughs> you know, I, I like you want to. It's to me, you know, like music like that is is seems to be, you know, one dimensional. And uh, the way that I approach songs, it, it needs to be the whole, the whole picture. You know, it needs to be you know multidimensional. It has to have you know different colors and all that stuff, and then it, it makes it sound like you know 
it makes it sound like a whole instead of like, you know, you listen to whatever, whatever band and you'd be like, wow, that top player is great. But the rest of the band doesn't, isn't really contributing as much. And you miss the song. Sure. It doesn't have a song. It's, you know, you don't have a good song. You have a really good guitar track or like, you know, a great drum track. You don't have a great song. And I'm more interested in, you know, a great song than I am, you know, technical proficiency from one standout player. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, which yeah. it can it kind of it kind of bookends um when we're talking about you in the context of typo negative. Uh a lot of those I think everything but dead again was cut with a drum machine as far as studio work, right? Yeah, but even even so like uh you know, that was just a tool to to, you know, I guess like uh you know, to achieve you know, what we were trying to do. You know, we'd all get in a room and we'd work on the songs together and stuff like that. Right. And we, when it came time, like, you know, sort of recording process, you know, we would just use samplers and, you know, we would program all the drums and we would take everything that we worked on at the studio and just put it in there, you know, put it, you know, put it in the, in the uh, sampling program. But it was still, you know, I mean, I, I was just, I just, all morning, I've had my computer on. I've been editing seven void songs, you know, because that's that's how we do all our demos and everything. It's kind of the same way with the typo records. And I can sit here and do it. I'm sitting on a, you know, at my workbench in my garage, you know, <laughs> instead of having to, you know, go to the studio and stuff. It's just a tool that, I guess, uh, you know, it makes things a little bit easier. Sure, sure. From a production certainly standpoint, too. I would imagine, yeah. And it certainly, it certainly saves a, a ton of money. Right. Is there is there any yeah. inherent challenges, you know, as you if you're coming from kind of the school of Bonham, is there any inherent challenges in in I guess duplicating that studio sound versus live because I'm a, I'm of the opinion that Typo Negative was not I don't want to say drastically different as a live band, but uh it was it seemed much more alive and electric uh in a performance situation as opposed to um, you know, it's more kind of vibe on on an album as I mean, opposed to live. I, I guess, I, you know, I I always enjoyed the live aspect more. You know, I've never really been a big fan of studio work, and you know, I like get you know working on working on the records. They always uh, they took a piece of your soul from me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? And uh, you know, we would spend so much time. You know, in the studio, working on the songs, and like a particular, like you know, like like for my part, like you know, working on drum tracks, and we would sit there literally for you know weeks, you know, going over everything, and then you know, using the uh, using the samplers wound up many times like having a great advantage because we would put something, you know, I I'd put a drum track, I put a drum track on it, the guys would play over it, and then. We would go back and listen to it, and then if something didn't feel right, we didn't have to live with it, as opposed to, you know, if we were doing things, you know, I guess back then, if we were doing, putting the things on tape or whatever, if we were going into a studio and tracking uh, live jumps, whatever we had, we were stuck with. And there was a number of songs on uh, on the three records that we used, that we used the drum machine on. There was a number of songs that after, you know, Peter and Kenny did all their parts and stuff, the 
drum track just wasn't right. It didn't feel good. You know, something was off. You know, whatever reason it was, it just wasn't good enough. And we had the ability to go back in and we could change everything else from under them. And we we had to do that for a lot of songs. Um, but uh, you know, as far as like emulating or like you know recreating, it wasn't it wasn't that hard to do. The life situation is always different for us. You know, we always had a we had an approach for the live show just to uh, we wanted to keep things a little bit more energetic in the live show mm-hmm. as opposed to what we run the records because the records like you know like the, the atmosphere that we were trying to go for was like you know really dreary and you know. Uh, the end of the world. You wanted to kill yourself after you listened to the song. Right. <laughs> and we didn't, when we would play live, especially like when I first joined the band, we would play live, when we, uh, you know, we only had the first two records to play from. And uh, so we would play songs like Bloody Kisses. And it, it's a long song. It's really dreary. It's really depressing. Uh, it, you know, it moves slowly. Well, I think it's a, a great song. It doesn't really come across well in a live setting. And we would think, like, you know, going to the bar, or like, you know, they would lose, it seemed like we would lose the crowd. So then we would try to, like, you know, do things to, like, you know, just pick it up, and, you know, just try to keep it more energetic, and, you know, try to focus on the other aspects of, you know, what typo is about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and use that in the live show. And we would have, like, uh, <laughs> we had lots of fights about, like, you know, tempos and stuff. Because, <laughs> <laughs> um, like, part of that, I would want to keep that dreariness to it, you know, to an extent. And then, you know, like, you know, other guys, like, you know, we don't have, like, you know, we don't have different things or something. And so we'd always start, like, you know, be like, oh, you know, come on, pick it up, and blah, blah, blah. And be like, well, you know, it's, it's it's getting too out of control, you know, <laughs> you know, it's losing the essence of the song, you know, so, and so anyway, it would always be like, you know, that infighting about things like that, but, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was a compromise. Sure. That, that's how, we, that's how we saw it, and also because of all the layering, all the different tracks and stuff, you know, with, you know, that were on the records, I mean, Jesus, October Rush had like 54 tracks on it. Right. That's a lot of layering. That's a lot of different instruments, a lot of like secondary parts and stuff. There's only four of us on stage. So we were just trying to, we were, you know, that was another compromise. We would try to like, you know, do the best that we could to try to, you know, replicate the, the song. But you only have four of us. <laughs> you right. know, four guys with a 50 instrument. <laughs> That's what twelve and a half instruments per person. <laughs> I was well. It's 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 funny it's to not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny to think about to me because I I think of you know bands that make a lot of noise for a few members. Um, Cream comes to mind. Um, you know, and and you guys as well for, for for four guys doing all of the output. There's there's a lot happening as far as song structure goes in a live setting. Uh, I was watching I was watching the uh, the live from uh, Vaken DVD uh, uh-huh. it, that Typo put out, and I've, right. I'm just amazed at the, it is a wall of sound, and it's only four guys doing this. Was there That's a con- what we wanted that that was ultimately the goal? Like you know, he had he had this idea. He had to, well, he had this this, uh, this vision. He just wanted a wall of sound a wall of noise. And it was like, uh, like, you know, he didn't want like, you know, 
he wanted you to try to figure out, not really try to figure out, but like, you know, like, it didn't matter if the bass was doing it or the guitar or the keyboards or whatever. He just wanted it to sound like, you know, he just wanted the different sounds from it. It wasn't anything in particular, you know, like where something would stand out. He just wanted a whole big ball of mess. <laughs> as as a bass player, um, there's only one other player that I can think that's really kind of similar to the way that Peter still played, and it's Lemmy from Motorhead. Um we're we're talking about a player who approached the bass almost as if it was like a six string guitar. You know, there's a lot of distortion, there's a lot of, you know, reverb and chorus and stuff on that to where it starts to sound less bass like and more guitar like. It, it, it seems like the same kind of approach. You know, Motorhead Motorhead you know, they were doing it, you know, for years, but it was definitely that kind of thing where you still had that I guess, like, you know, that low-end tone, you know, that, that bottom end to it, but it was, you know, it was an approach. It was an approach that's just the bass. You know, it, it, it had to, it, it took it took up more space than just, you know, playing bass. Right. You know, as opposed to, like, you know, like a John Paul Jones or, you know, like a Paul McCartney or something. Right. How, how did Peter, and, uh, as a player, how, did, how do you think Peter kind of arrived at that point? You know, was it, did it come out of the hardcore movement, you know, with being with Carnivore and stuff like that, or... Was it I think it was, uh, you know, had a, a really large talent as, as far as, like, you know, the kind of music that he was into. And he would take little things from from each. He would hear something, you know, he would, uh, like, you know, if he listened to stuff like, uh, like My Bloody Valentine, mm. and the way the instruments he used there, you can hear that, you can hear, you know, Peter had picked up some stuff like that. He picked up, uh, yeah, definitely stuff like, you know, like Motorhead for sure. You know, he was a big Motorhead fan, but he keep it, and, uh, you know, uh, he took some of the stuff that he did learn from, you know, like when he was into hardcore and things like that, and he would apply that to, you know, different types of music. Like, uh, like Typo has roots in hardcore, but you can't say that they were a hardcore band. Right. You know, just like, I, I don't, I don't think it's, really accurate to call Typo like, you know, uh, a goth band either because there was, you know, like there was certain elements of it, of course, but there was, uh, you know, there was stuff like, you know, we picked from so many different things to to try to, you know, create our identity. Mm-hmm. And it really was like a like a mixed bag of all kinds of stuff, right. you know, for better or worse. And, uh, you know, Peter definitely had a number of influences as far as his bass playing. It was... Uh, it was impressive because he could, uh, like, he was a mixture of, like, to me, he was a mixture of, like, you know, uh, Lenny Giza Butler, like, uh, John M. Whistle, uh, John Paul Jones, and, uh, who else? You know, there was so many that he was, like, you know, really into as far as, like, in you know, a bass playing. Mm-hmm. And he would take that, you know, take, like, those, those Lenny kind of principles and kind of mix that up with, like, a Paul McCartney kind of, you know, Bass lines, and uh, you know that was that was like the most impressive part about it. He, he really was a incredible bass player. I've never seen anybody else, you know, play an instrument the way that he did. And his bass, like you know, his bass tone. If anybody else picked it up, all it did was squeal and feed back and just make all kinds of noise. <laughs> Nobody else could play it. <laughs> you know, like when our techs would do line checks and stuff, and, you know, like his bass tech would have the bass, you know, get ready, you know, so. The, you know, doing sound checks and stuff, it would just sound like a, a pile of crap. <laughs> but when Peter, you know, Peter knew how he had the ability to manipulate it to make it, you know, 
sound like something instead of just, you know, a broken instrument. That's awesome. It really was impressive. How do we go from, you know, World Coming Down, which I've, I've heard you say that you, you felt like World Coming Down was the most kind of honest, you know, lyrically album that Peter had wrote besides the first album. Yeah. Um, and then we go to right. Life Is Killing Me. And then Dead Again. Between Life Is Killing Me and Dead Again, there's a major uh, production style shift and just like a music style shift. How did we How did we jump in 2003 from Life Is Killing Me to what we got on Dead Again on 2007? Well, I think Life Is Killing Me uh, as a whole is like a, it's like a fragmented record. You know, it seems like the least um, cohesive record in our catalog. You know, like there's, you know, there's definitely some really, really cool songs on it. Uh, yeah. I always loved uh, Anesthesia. And, uh, you know, I think everybody in the band felt that way because of once the record, once the song was done, it stayed in the set <laughs> until the last show. But with Dead Again, I think Dead Again was just more, you know, we spent a lot of time in the rehearsal studio writing the record. Mm-hmm. Not and we would, we would go to the studio on an average, like six nights a week. And we would just play. And, uh, and uh, that was the result of it. And it seems more like a, just more like a rock record, like a lot of, uh, I guess, like a, a lot of jamming, a lot of playing. It's a little bit, um, it's a little more stripped down than what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Sure. And uh, also at the same time, like uh, after the world coming down, Peter wanted to, he wanted stuff that was a little more, um, you know, more energetic, more, uh, more fun to play, uh, not as, um, he wanted to find the fun and playing again. That's how that progression, you know, going from world coming down, you know, going to the, the next two records after that. That's that's uh, that was one of the uh, one of the primary goals, right? There's there. I mean, there's obviously kind of like a dreary, moody. You know, like you said, you wanted to kill yourself after you listened yeah. to the song earlier. Um, there, there's that kind of vibe to most of the typo material, um, but at the same time, you guys wear your humor on your sleeve. You know what I mean? You, you, your, your sense of humor is very, very evident, you know, in pretty much all of the typo output, you know, at, put, yeah, put, there's put, a lot of, a lot of tongue in cheek and everything that we did. Right. Put, put, put me in the, in the rehearsal space, you know, when, when we're working on material, we're rehearsing for a tour, you know, what's, what's the vibe like in the room, you know, when it's just the four guys, you know, you know, just kind of being around each other. Well, we were all friends, you know. We all uh, we all come from, we all came from the same neighborhood. You could literally walk to each other's houses, you know. Um, like in when I joined the band, you know, I knew the guys, I knew the guys for years before before I joined. Uh, you know, I did a bunch of recording at Josh's studio at his house, you know, with other bands and stuff. Uh, that's how me and Kenny met Josh. Kenny and I playing in a band when we were kids. <laughs> we did a recording at Josh's house. Right. And, um, you know, everybody knew each other, and everybody knew each other for a very long time. Even before, I guess, you know, typo started, even when I joined the band, you know, it wasn't like a, 
so much like, you know, breaking in a new guy because we all knew each other, actually, you know, very well. And uh, I think that helped. That's probably, that probably helped how I, you know, got into the band because they knew what they were getting, <laughs> you know, you know personality-wise. <laughs> right. And uh, so I guess, like, you know, it would always start, you know, pretty much the same way. You know, we'd, we'd talk to each other, you know, pretty often, even when we weren't playing. Uh, it just depends on everybody's mood. If somebody had a hair up their ass, you know, rehearsal was short. <laughs> you know, sometimes, you know, I would even... You know, we get into the room and, you know, whatever, somebody would be cranky. <laughs> just, you know, all right, that's it. We're not doing anything tonight. <laughs> get in the car and taking you home. <laughs> <laughs> you nice. know, like when we were doing that again, you know, we'd all drive to the studio together, you know, go to Peter's house, pick them up, and then we'd drive out to walk away to, to the studio that we had. Right. And, uh, and then we would just, you know, it was, it was kind of casual, you know, like, you know, we just hang out and, and, uh, you know, we'd spend a lot of time, you know, a lot of time playing. And, uh, you know, forget again, we did that for months. It was like, you know, it was a long winter. Mm, you know, okay. Like I, said, like I said before, you know, we go to the studio, like, you know, six nights a week. And, uh, yeah, we would just, we would just play for hours and just, you know, see what would happen. And then, uh, you know, like if something cool, you know, something cool would come up or like, you know, something that we wanted to use and, you know, we put some time into it. And, uh, you know, try to make it, you know, the best that I could, you know. And um, then we would, you know, uh, there was a Chinese restaurant downstairs. We would go eat. Uh, I guess we still more like four guys hanging out. Some small talk about stuff at home or who, you know, what happened today. Or It wasn't just the, uh, certainly wasn't, you know, punching the clock. Right. Do your eight hours, you know, you get your, uh, you get your lunch break, <laughs> then you clock out at the end of the day. Right. Definitely, you know, like being, you know, being in a band, it was more than just doing what you're, uh, just you're playing. It was, it's a 24-7. Right. It was easy to do because we were all friends. Right. It makes it, it makes it easier, right? Yeah. There, yeah. There's a lot of, there isn't, that, uh, you know, like that thing that, you know, it's always in the back of your head, oh, I should say this, or, you know, I should do this because I'm going to get, you know, I get fired, or, you know, there was always, it was just very, like, if something, you know, something would be cool, somebody would say something. Right. If something was great, you know, everybody would, you know, be enthusiastic about it as well, you know, let's go, you know, let's keep going there, that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, you know, it, it was fun, but at the end of the day, you know, it was so much work, and it, it really was a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of emotional attachment to everything that you did. Once we would finish the record, pretty much everybody would disappear, and we wouldn't talk to each other for a while. <laughs> you know, we need a break. I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you when I talk to you. It's time to decompress, right? Yeah, pretty, yeah, definitely, you know, to, yeah, exhale. Right. Because it's finally done, and that was, you know, yeah, everybody would just scatter and just disappear. And, and then, you know, you, you had, it wasn't for a long amount of time, because when the record was done, and you had the whole process of you know, promoting the record, things like that. It was, like I said, it was 24-7, but we definitely weren't, like, hanging out with each other at that point. 
once the records were done, nobody wanted to see each other for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, you knew coming up shortly, we were all going to be living on a bus together, and we'd all be on top of each other for whatever. You know, some of the you know touring cycles were very long. So I want to I want to talk about 2010. There was uh, right. there's a lot of stuff that happened in the world of Johnny Kelly in 2010. Your your father, your grandfather passed away, and Peter Steele passed away all in the same year. And you were working on uh, the Danzig album, Death Red Sabbath, correct? Uh, well, the timeline is a little a little off. Okay. My grandfather, my my grandfather, and my father. It was actually before 2010. Okay. My grandfather died in August of 2008. My father died in January of 2009, and then Peter died a year later. Okay. In that, in in and working on the Danzig record, I'm trying to figure out when I worked on it because it was we would work. Danzig would work in. Uh, I I would if I was out there. Like, for instance, uh, Typo was touring on Dead Again, and we, we played uh, played Anaheim. We had a day off, and then we played in L.A. On that day off, I went to the studio in L.A. with Glenn and recorded a couple of songs. So it would work out. It wasn't like uh, working on the Danzig record where we had, say, like, you know, a couple of weeks or, like, you know, a week or whatever, where it was, like, you know, a blocked-out amount of time just work on it. We would work on on songs when it was convenient. Like if I was going to be in the area, you know, stuff like that. If right. I was going out to L.A. for anything else, I'd go in and do a day with Glenn. Right. So the record was made over a long period of time in little, little, you know, sections. I can't even remember you know, <laughs> when, 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 the first, when the first session was to the last section. Right. I don't remember. I just remember, you know, the record was finally finished and it was coming out. I remember, I can recall being in the studio with him, you know, working on some stuff, but I couldn't give you a timeline on it. Right. Except for that one I, the one I explained about right. the day off in between. That's all. So the, the, that two, that year and a half to, you know, two and some change, your period of time, you know, you as a person, you, how, do you, how, do you, how do you balance, you know, having to deal with major events in your personal life and being able to, to, to make sure that you're giving, you know, your professional commitments, you know, the, the attention that it needs and things like that was, how did you sort that stuff out internally? Well, I mean, you know, like, uh, you know, all of those things were very significant in my life and, and for all of it to happen in uh, such a short amount of time. I guess, you know, looking back on it, I guess, you know, you could, you could look at it and you could go, you know, wow, yeah, that's, that's, that's really intense. You know, at the same time, you know, I have a family, you know, I have, I have a daughter, I have a stepdaughter. Um, if I worked, you know, if I was still a mailman, you know, like any other, any other career aside from, you know, playing music, how much time would I be given to, you know, you get what, a day, two days for, uh, you know, what's it, a grievance allowance, it's called, or something like that? Sure. You know, my wife goes, my wife's job, you know, she was, when my father died, she was allowed, like, two days off. <laughs> Bereavement. Right, there you go, that, that was the one I was looking for. Right, so you only get, like, you know, maybe two or three days, and then 
you have to go back to work. Right. And even even though, like, you know, those things happen, I still have to keep going. You know, the, the world doesn't stop just because, you know, my father passed away or, you know, because Peter passed away. I mean, it, it was... That really was a crazy time because within that time period, I had been to, like, 10 funerals. A really good friend of mine, like... One of my best friends, his younger brother died two weeks after Peter did. And a lot of a lot of the people that that were at Peter's funeral, we were all at my friend's other funeral two weeks later, and we were all sitting there in the funeral home going, didn't we just do this? And then we are all, like, you know, speculating, saying, you know, we're a little young to be doing this so often. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, I, I, you know, it's like, you know, part of it was, you know, to, you know, just jump into, jump into my work and try to, you know, tie up as many new ends as I could in a short amount of time to try to get back on track. That was part of my way, that was part of my coping mechanism. You know, like uh, when my father passed away, uh, he died unexpectedly. And uh, so, you know, after the funeral, I just put all my energy into tying up all of his defense. And, you know, like the stuff, like, you know, dealing with his estate and things like that. I got all that stuff. I tried to get all that wrapped up and, you know, put to bed as quickly as possible. Right. He was passing away. You know, it, it really was intense. And in a lot of ways, you know, because it wasn't just like, you know, like, you know, there were there were a number of things that were being that were being uh, you know dealt with at the same time. Because mm-hmm. like you know, you, you, you lost your friend. You know, but also you know he died unexpectedly. It wasn't something that that was uh, you know it wasn't like he was sick for a long time or you know like like say like he had like you know cancer. It was the whole thing of like you know somebody passes away from cancer. You know, Peter passed away. You know, that was it for the band. Uh, so now I'm sitting there and it's like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm staring this in the face and I'm like, you know, what am I going to do now? You know, the thing that I've you know, with the band, that was everything that was going on pretty much my, most of my adult life, where it was something that was a, a 24, you know, like everything before it was 12-7. Now you got to figure out what to do now with yourself. You know, because Peter passed away. What's the conversation with Kenny and Josh like? I think... I think Actually, th- uh, Josh really didn't say much. <laughs> Josh, he didn't, he, he didn't say much at all. Um, <clears throat> it was, uh, you know, I guess it was just, you know, one of those things where it was, you know, we, we took some time to, like, you know, you know take the blow, you know, and just accept everything that just happened. And then, uh, you know, there were never any, any discussions or conversations or even, like, you know, not even a, a pondering of, you know, continuing with the band and stuff. It was uh, pretty much, like, you know, discussions as far as the band went was to, um, you know, what to do about closing up shop. And how how are we going to deal with these things? You know, like you know, what are we going to leave things as, and you know, stuff like that. 
you know, it, it really was strange as far as like, uh, you know, because not only is it like, you know, it's your band and your career, there's also like, you know, the other aspects of it where it was, uh, it's a, it's a, a business, you know, so, you know, like, what were we going to do with that? And, you know, things like, you know, just our, you know, all the gear that we had, storage, uh, you know, like little the, the corporate, you know, issues that have to be addressed and, you know, stuff like that. But we, you know, pretty much we just left it the way, we just left everything the way it was. And, uh, you know, then it was, yeah, the, the fact of like, you know, accepting, accepting the fact that, you know, typo is no more. You know, that was, that was a little tough. And then, you know, then, uh, the day of the funeral, I had to fly to Los Angeles to go do uh, dancing at a really big radio show in Phoenix. And even with that, I wasn't really sure, you know, how to handle that, you know, because, like, you know, even with that, like, you know, Glenn was totally cool about it. He's like, you know, if you want to you cancel the show, it's totally fine. But that's all right. And then, you know, thinking about it, I was like, you know, I think I should go play. For me, that's, that's, it was like, I guess, like a, you know, I guess a test for myself to see if this is, you know, the path that I should, you know, keep, keep going in or should I just, you know, pack up my toys, <laughs> you know, put them away and start doing something else. And, uh, so I, I told Glenn that, you know, let's keep the show, you know, because, you know, there's really nothing I could do here anyway, you know, by staying home. And, uh, so, you know, like from the church, I, you know, I went to, went to the airport, flew out to LA, you know, we did a quick rehearsal. And, uh, when the show came up, you know, we went to Phoenix and then, you know, we're at the, uh, we're at the venue and, you know, it was definitely weird and awkward and stuff. I mean, you know, still in shock about everything. And then, and then when the intro tape rolled, and uh, you know, we started, you know, we were going through the show and we started to play. And it's like, you know what? This, uh, this is what I meant to do. And at that, you know, at that point, that was the, uh, that was an indication to me, you know, whatever higher power telling me that you know, this is. This is your this is your place. This is what you're supposed to be doing. And then, you know, just try to you know, and just let it continue from there. So your relationship with uh, with Kenny, uh, you and Kenny play right. in Seventh Void. Uh, you guys started working on um, the Heaven Is Gone material like mid two thousands, right? Yeah, actually, we were working on that before Life Is Killing came out. That we we were working on. Working on it casually. Um, that was something, you know, it really just started out. Uh, Kenny had a couple of things written. He wanted to, he wanted to record them and see how they sounded. And uh, he wanted to do something that was different from Typo. Sure. You know, because we had Typo. It didn't really make sense to do something that would sound like Typo. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't right. really, you know, it didn't really make sense to us that way. We wanted to do something to 
you know, just play something that was a little bit simpler and, you know, uh, just something different. And uh, hopefully the goal was to, like, you know, hopefully it would be something cool enough where we could do that while Typo was on breaks. Right. You know, because at that point, at that point in Typo's career, it, was, it would take us a really long time, to, you know, in between records. Right. So we were like, oh, you know, we can do this, you know, if it's cool, whatever, and we can, you know, we can play with Seven Boys while Typo isn't doing anything, fill up the time, and stay active, you know, be creative. Your your relationship with Kenny. I mean, obviously you guys, you know, you, you were in Typo together. You guys have this long-standing friendship. Is there, you know, like when it comes to the writing process or like the band dynamic internally, you know, is there just kind of like an unspoken sort of understanding between the two of you guys? We're, we're pretty tough with each other, you know, but it's a, you know, tough love. Right. I guess. You know, like, you know, like with your parents, <laughs> we, we, uh, oh, we've been friends for 30 years and there isn't anything, there definitely isn't any kid gloves, uh, being worn. If something's not cool, I, I could just tell him, dude, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a lot of times, like, uh, like we've been, we've been working a lot on, uh, on new step and stuff for quite a bit and uh, we're constantly pushing each other you know like he'll send me a demo or something and, or I'll go to his house and you know work on demos with him and uh, like for instance I was just telling him recently I was like I said you, know, you have to work on these vocal parts he said you know they're just not even though they're you know they're just demos and it's just ideas and stuff and I was just like dude I was like you don't sound like you're suffering enough <laughs> 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 that's awesome. That's what I said to him. I, I said it doesn't sound it doesn't sound painful enough. And uh, you know, like he was just telling me, he just sent me a text uh, yesterday morning. I sent him uh, a rough of the song, a uh, drum track that I had finished up, and he was like, he goes, he goes, you know, the intro's really lame. <laughs> the way you come into the song, he's like, he's like, you know, you got to change the intro on it. You know, it, it's just it, it's not good. And it's not something like like when we talk to each other, we could be uh, brutally honest, but it, it's like you're not insulted by it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just our way of communicating, but we're constantly we're constantly pushing each other, right? It, but it's for the, uh, the the it's a common goal, so there isn't any uh, apprehensiveness about you right. know, behind it. Right. It's just you know, we both know that we want to make whatever song we're working on, we want it to be the best that it can be. And if this is how we communicate, then that's fine. Right. It's not like, you know, I'm not going to talk to Kenny, you know, because, you know, he hurt my feelings today. You know, so there's, there isn't any of that. So like people like watch, watch the two of us talk and when we're hanging out together, you know, constantly, I guess like, you know, beating each other up, (laughs) you know, a lot of people find it entertaining. (laughs) <laughs> you know but some people like you know if they don't I guess maybe if they don't know us they'd be like wow these guys are really brutal with each other right like, you know they're friends <laughs> I want to talk about Danzig within the fan community there's a there's a mysteriousness to how Danzig operates internally and 
does that vibe, you know, like what you have with Kenny, does that carry over to the Danzig situation? Or is it altogether something completely different? Definitely a little bit of a different dynamic. But uh, I think it's, you know, you know what it is, and I've, I've learned this over the years. I think it's being from the East Coast. Okay. Being from, like, the, you know, the New York area and stuff. You know, this is just how, this is the way people get along. You know, if, if, if you're hanging out with people, and if they don't say anything to you, then you should be worried. If somebody's giving you a hard time and constantly, like, you know, busting your chops and stuff, I mean, they're kind of, you know, it's kind of considered endearing. <laughs> you know, somebody, you know, is like that to you, you know, constantly living you or, you know, just, just busting your balls. Okay. You know, that, that, that means that, that you're okay. Like, you know, you're, you're one of us. Right. Glenn, from Glenn originally, like, you know, he's originally from New Jersey. He still has that, you know, East Coast uh, mentality. So we're constantly, you know, we're constantly giving each other a hard time, all, you know, all the time. And uh, I think that's, you know, like now, Glenn has a pretty stable lineup. You know, this lineup has been together for a number of years now, like eight years, something like that. Right. With me, Steve and, and, and Tommy Victor, and I think it's because we're all from the East Coast. When I talked to Steve earlier this year, Steve was, Steve was on the podcast earlier this year. I did an interview with him, and Steve was very adamant about uh, there's no drama in the band. And Steve brought up, you know, if, if if fans approached you about doing a reunion with the Christ Biscuits, Erie Vaughn lineup of the band. Uh, you right. know, I, I would be into that. You know, Steve said as a fan, I would be into that. And Glenn said, there's no drama. This is what I, this is what I want to do. This is the, this is the lineup I want to stick with. Um, and you talking yeah, about, ta- yeah, you talking about the East coast thing, you know, what, what's your relationship, you know, with Glenn, you know, Glenn's a little bit older than you, obviously. And I've heard you say on a couple of occasions that it's, it's really an honor. To, to play to play in Danzig, like uh, I've talked about this with like you know like you know some of my friends and stuff, and you know like the thing keep the thing that keeps coming back, you know whether Glenn wants to admit it or accept it, uh, you know whatever, you know it, 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 he really is an icon, you know his his catalog, you know his his body of work with everything that he's done, you know with the Misfits and. You know, Sam Hain, and, and even with, you know, with his, like, I guess, solo stuff, you know, a lot of it has really stood the test of time. I mean, it really mm-hmm. does, you know, it definitely has its place, you know, the history of rock and roll. And to be, you know, a part of that family tree really is an honor. Right. And, uh, you know, like every, you know, whenever... You know, every show, every show that we do, I try to, you know, I try to keep that in the back of my mind, you know, to remind myself of, um, you know, what you're doing and, you know, uh, why, you know, why people, you know, why his fans are still so um, uh, enthusiastic about it. Right. You know, that, that that isn't, to me, it's, you know, it's not a fluke. And, uh, 
you know, like there are definitely, you know, there's definitely a lot of bands out there that have been around, you know, just as long. But it doesn't seem to have that factor to it where it's like, you know, a lot of like, a lot of, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the set is songs from over 20 years ago. And when, when I'm on stage playing the songs with them, it doesn't feel like, you know, we're playing something that's nostalgic. There's still, there's still something relevant to his catalog. It doesn't have that nostalgia tag to it. Hmm. <clears throat> and that, to me, that's the proof right there. And that's probably like, you know, the, you know, one of the things that's, you know, most impressive about it. You know, it's withstood the test of time. Right. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't feel like, you know, it doesn't feel like we're on stage, you know, performing and trying to relive the, the old days. You know what I mean? Right. And that, that's really impressive. And that, that's, that's what, you know, separates it from, from being classified as something, you know, something nostalgic. Right. Or retro, or, you know. And when he goes out there, every night, you got to hand it to him. You know, he goes out there every night, 110%. And, uh, you know, doesn't, he doesn't try to cut corners on it. And he goes out there and he still, you know, uh, he, I think it's the only way he, he doesn't know how to do it any other way, <laughs> you know, like all or nothing. Right. And he goes out there and, you know, he's, he's, he's out there performing like he did when he, you know, in his, in his early 20s. Right. Is there any bit of like, uh, <clears throat> you know, is there any, <laughs> has there ever been a moment where like Glenn Danzig is bestowing upon you a particularly sage bit of wisdom you know, where that's, you know, because he will always, had... always trying to give me wisdom. <laughs> no, actually, uh, you know, like when, you know, hanging out and talking and stuff like that, it's great to hear. He's got a ton of stories. You know, he's, he's, he's done it all. And he was, uh, witness firsthand to a lot of, uh, you know, what was going on in New York City back then. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so, like, you know, like, to hear stories like that, like, you know, for him, uh, he, uh, he told me that uh, before he started, like, you know, singing in bands and stuff like that, uh, before the Misfits, he, he used to, uh, he was a photographer. And he would go to shows and shoot bands and stuff. And he was telling me about, like, you know, all these pictures that he has and stuff, you know, seeing bands like, you know, like Kiss and, uh, you know, like the New York Dolls and, and you know, playing in clubs in New York City. You know, it, it had, it was, it must have been really cool to, like, you know, you know, be a part of that. Right. I, I was just, you know, I'm, I was too young. And, uh, so, like, you know, I, I, I like, any time that, that stuff comes up, I'm always trying to push them. Like, dude, you should definitely put that stuff out. You know, right. You should put a book together. And uh, he's like, oh, I don't know, you know, whatever. Which I'm sure would probably be, you know, a tremendous amount of work. But you know, he's got a bunch of, you know, New York rock and roll history, you know, sitting in boxes, you know, in his basement. <laughs> I want to see it. I think it's more, 
more about selfish motives than anything else. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, you know, like, sort of hear stories about, like, you know, you know, about rock and roll, you know, happening in New York, you know, like, in that, in that time, you know, that, that's, to me, that's, that's pretty cool. And then when it, you know, when he's, when he's talking about that stuff, I'm all ears. Kill Devil Hill. <clears throat> okay. What's 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 going on right now? Is I did we... uh, which one called right before? I was in Indianapolis two weeks ago. Yep. Actually, a week and a half ago. Yep. Yeah. And when I got to Indianapolis, Dewey had just sent me a rough first uh, uh, one of the songs that we worked on in the spring. He, he just finished the vocals on it, and it sounds killer. It's just, uh, you know, we, we working on new, new material. It's just been slow going. Other, is it other commitments you know, getting it, other commitments getting in the way or what's, what's the holdup? I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's other commitments. I think it's just life getting in the way. Okay. And, uh, you know, uh, so I'm in New Jersey, Rex is in New Mexico, Mark and Dewey are in California. Dewey goes back to Alabama a lot. Dewey's been, going back and forth, spent a lot of time with his family back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark's been, Mark, what does he do? I think he's, where's he been going? He's got, he's got something going on in, it's either Northern California or Montana. I know that does, that's like a big stretch, but I can't remember which one Right. <laughs> At least it's on the same continent, right? Yeah, yeah, he's somewhere north. <laughs> So is there, can, can you give, can you give, you know, listeners like any kind of idea what you feel like, you know, the, this next, you know, this next piece of work is going to sound like? Uh, I'm not really sure. It's, uh, you know, it's one of the songs that we've worked on is definitely, it's definitely changed a little bit as far as the, uh, like the vibe. Mm-hmm. Of uh, like you know, with the with the first two Soul Devil Hill records were about, it's like uh, I think like you know, like the first record was really cool. I think the second record was great, and they were you know, like the band was really finding its identity. And uh, you've you've done you've you've done like three songs, and uh, you know, so it's a, it's a little bit of a continuation of that, but it's like you know, it's changed up a little bit, and. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, that last song that they, that, that the song that they sent me, you know, last week, it, it was great to hear something like, you know, with vocals on it, because I've heard, like, you know, the basic tracks for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it was cool to hear, like, you know, uh, you know, like the song is, is I guess it's pretty much finished. It, it sounded like it was completed. Right. You know, it's got a really cool guitar solo on it, and, you know, it's, it, the song's got a great vibe. The song's, it's pretty aggressive. And, uh, you know, I'm just dying to just get out there and, you know, finish the rest of this record. Right. <laughs> and, uh, cause we, uh, I was down the spring and we, you know, we did, we did the, uh, we did the three songs. And, uh, you know, what we really need to do is, like, you know, we need to get out to California and just, we need to get two of them together and just, you know, hunker down and come up with some, you know, some killer riffs. You know, because playing with those guys is a blast. You know, Lex is such a phenomenal bass player. Mark, great guitar player. I love Dewey. Dewey's he's a great singer, great frontman. 
and he's 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 a blast to hang out with. The guy he cracks me up constantly. <laughs> really, really funny. And uh, you know, playing with him, it, it to me, it's it's like you know, like to get to play with Rex, it's like you know, going to school. <laughs> you know, nice. You know, he definitely like you know forces you to you know step up the game. Has there been any other? You know, I've heard like a drummer like Eric Singer. I heard Eric Singer say once that the time that he spent playing with Gary Moore really kind of pushed him to be uh, a much better drummer, a much better musician. Has there ever been any of those moments, you know, or anybody in particular that really kind of propelled you to to a new level of your game? I've been I've been fortunate enough. I've been able to play with a lot of people. You know, doing various different things. You know, just jamming with people and stuff and. You know, uh, I like to think that I've taken something from, you know, getting the opportunity to play with each of these people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like getting get to play in Black Label, uh, you know, doing jams and, you know, in LA with like, you know, playing with people like, uh, you know, like Billy Sheehan and, you know, I do Hookers and Blow with Dizzy Reed and Duda, Mike Duda and, um, Alex Glossy. Duda's a phenomenal bass player too. I love playing with him. Him and I, we, you know, like when we play together, it's like, it's just some kind of connection where we just, like, just work great together. Right. And it's fun and it's, and it's effortless. And, uh, you know, like, I, you know, part of that though, like, you know, a lot of that was playing with Peter and Josh. You know, playing in typo really forced me to step up a game, you know, step up my game. And, uh, you know, but each person that you play with, you know, there's, there's always something a little bit different. You know, there's something unique about them. And you try to grab onto that. And it, it does kind of, you know, it forces you to step off the game, especially if you know, you're playing with somebody that's, you know, really, really good, like like a Rex. Right. And, uh, you know, really, it, it, it tries to, you know, you try to be more aware of what you're doing, how you're doing it, and, uh, you know, just to make sure that you're locked in with these people. You know, and Rex is like, you know, he's so spot on all the time. Every time we play together. And that's, you know, it's like you, you want to be just as good as that. So you push yourself and you try to, you know, pay attention to all the little details. You know, what, what are you doing? What aren't you doing? You know, and, you, and every time, like, you know, like when you do that, you, okay, I would do that. Like as a kid, like you know, whatever playing, you know, playing sports. I, I always wanted to play hockey with the big guys, even though I was a kid. <laughs> you know, and then they, you know, the big guys, they would be like, "Oh, the kid wants to play. All right, let's let him play." And they would beat the hell out of him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> forcing to play their game. Right. You know, and, and I think that carried on. You know, with my, uh, with my you know, with my drumming. You know, you just don't, like, I, I enjoy being challenged. I don't like doing you know, something that just feels like fatigue, you know? Right, right. You know, whether the song is simple or not, it's, it, that's completely irrelevant. It could be the simplest song. But if you don't play it right, you know, you just wasted everybody's time. And, uh, you know, like a, like a lot of people don't give him credit. You know, a guy like Phil Watt from ACDC. Sure. Probably one of the greatest drummers out there. The guy is a. It's. I don't even think he's really human. He's, <laughs> I think he's. 
He's some kind of machine. He's a metronome. <laughs> yeah, the guy's absolutely false. A lot of a lot of people aren't impressed by that, but like you know, his consistency is something that cannot be overlooked. Right. Are you a big ACDC fan? Uh, yeah, yeah. I've I've always been. You know, since I first heard them on the radio when I was a kid, I was so. <laughs> the difference between Bon Scott. ACDC and Brian Johnson ACDC. Do you have, do you lean one way or the other? I'm more towards Bon Scott. Okay. ACDC. Okay. I never got to see them with Bon Scott. I, I've seen them numerous times with Brian Johnson. But they're like one of the, one of the rare instances where a band is capable of replacing a singer and uh, still being able to catch lightning in a bottle. Right. And uh, even though uh, the songs definitely changed a lot with Brian Johnson and the band, you know, like on, uh, on Back in Black, so the songwriting is definitely different. It, it would be really hard to picture Bon Scott singing on that record. Mm-hmm. Sure. Now, I don't know if that's like, you know, if, if that was because Bon Scott passed away. You know, it's hard to say, you know, like what, what played a part in that record. You know, for them to go into that direction, you know, for them to do what they did. Right. As opposed to, you know, whatever, doing another, you know, highway to hell or like, you know, that's a big step. But even though, like, you know, this stuff with Bon Scott is absolutely incredible. Yep. I think on, on Back in Black, you, you you uniquely hear the sound of a band with its back up against the wall. And I think I think that has a lot to do with it. I, yeah, probably, you know, what they had nothing to lose. And, uh, you know, they were just going for it, you know. And I, I don't know if, like, uh, you know, part to say, you know, as far as, like, you know, like, uh, whatever, the producer, Mutt Lang produced. Like, Mutt Lang produced Highway to Hell is also, right? Uh, yeah, Mutt Lang, I think. Yeah, and Mutt Lang, like, he produced Back in Black. Yep, yeah. Even, so, even with him there, you know, everybody just stepped up their game. You know, just it is. It's it's almost like it's two different bands. Because they can ever go from like you know the, the the raw, rough, rugged band that it was with Bon Scott, and then it changed so much. But it was like little changes, little things. Right. It seemed. Is there? And then you had you know then they became a juggernaut. Right. <laughs> you know, Best selling records of all time. I've you know I, the weird thing about ACDC to me is like they are a bar band that went supernova, you know, yeah. you know there's I th- I think musically there's not a lot that separates ACDC from something like you know George Thorogood and the Delaware Destroyers you know what I mean they're kind of in that same ballpark but for some reason ACDC translates so well to like an arena you can they play in Wembley Stadium. And it's massive. Yeah, I know. I know. And, uh, like, you know, they really weren't even that much, like, with Bon Scott and the band. They were, for the most part, a support act. Right. You know, for all those years. And, uh, but even the older stuff, it all translates to that, like, you know, big arena rock. And, it's, you know, there, there was a character to it also. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was a character, and it struck a nerve with people, and it was something that a lot of people could identify with. It, it grabbed them. And it hasn't let go yet. <laughs> what are we talking, 40 years? <laughs> yeah, 40 plus, yeah. Yeah, doesn't, you know, doesn't get old. Like, you know, I still, like, you know, you know, I hear, you know, Power Age come on the radio. I'm still cranking it. Right. For me, it's uh, 
It's a touch too much. <laughs> Great song. <laughs> oh my God! It's such an amazing yeah. song. Yeah. 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 And even though it comes from, it comes from that like you know that that thing line of uh, you know that same vein of rock and roll like you're saying like Joe Stoker and stuff like that. It's definitely it, to me. It's just it. It's better. You know. It just it just it 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 reached it grabbed me more than like you know like that kind of. That I guess like dirty rock and roll. Right. Is there anything within your own career? You know how you were talking about the how it just kind of took on. It became something different from Bon Scott to Brian Johnson, Highway to Hell to Back in Black. Is there anything in your own career that you kind of feel that way about? You know the you know take Danzig for instance. We have you know the original four records with a very established, well respected lineup of the band. To now, do you feel like? Have have you ever experienced being a part of you know breathing a different kind of life into the music that you're playing or you know any kind of experience like that? I think typo, you know typo to me. You know I think you know each record sounds like typo, but they're different records. You know, there's a different um, I don't know. There's a different essence to each one. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a pretty bold move for the band to go from, uh, you know, Bloody Kisses and the, the, the success that Bloody Kisses had and to, you know, respond to that with a, with a record like October Rust. Right. And then we did it again with World Coming Down, which is definitely a totally different record than October Rust was. And I, I thought that's one of the reasons I think why I admire World Coming Down so much. Is that it? Really was such a such a bold move, but it really was. You know, it was um, each record is like a like a picture of where your life is at that time, right? And it was stimulating in the sense that we weren't just trying to recreate something. It was a. Uh, it wasn't like all right, you know, we have you know, body kisses just went gold. That's great. Let's keep the train moving. Let's counter it with something that's just this, you know, something similar. As in, if you're doing something like that, you're just maintaining. You're not doing any, you're not really doing something creatively. You're just doing something to maintain your lifestyle or whatever, you know, to, to continue this success. Which, looking at it that way, it would have been very easy to, to do that. But, you know, you took a chance. You took a chance creatively and did something that really wasn't expected. You know, just took a turn. Right. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a conscious effort. It's just what we did. There wasn't any, uh, any agenda, you know, saying like, you know, all right, you know, we did this and now we're going to go this way. It was just, this is what happened when we got in the room. We just, (laughs) you know, we just, we took this, this turn. And that's, I had always admired that about the band. You know, it's, it's hard to say, like, you know, this record sounds like that, like this one is, you know, reminiscent of this one, or, you know, let's go back to this because, you know, you know, Dead Again should be more like Bloody Kisses because, you know, World Coming Down really didn't sell as well. And, uh, it was, it was never anything like that. It was, it really was just, this is where we are now. This is who we are now as people. And this is the, you know, right the end result. I still think 
uh, man, I really like that again. <laughs> I really, really I like it. I, I, the thing that I'm most impressed about it is here, here you have a band that's almost 20 years old. Right. And it's still got the same, uh, same MO as far as uh, putting the effort in, really trying to work hard, trying to, uh, you know, satisfy ourselves. Right. At that point in our career, we could have just put out anything and not really care about it, and we could still use it as a vehicle to, like, you know, tour and, you know, earn a living and stuff. And that that wasn't the case. And I think it was something, it was still something that was viable. It still offered something unique and new and, uh, you know, such such forefront. But that impressed me the most about it. Wow. I think there are are a couple of, you know, a bunch of the songs on that record I thought were really, really cool. And uh, again, going back to that, I was just relieved when it was done. <laughs> I was able to sit back and listen to it yeah, and just go, Amen. <laughs> For a long time, though, it felt like it was never going to get done. We were constantly, constantly rehearsing, reworking songs, you know, trying different things. Finally, it, was just, it just got to a point where we were just like, we have to stop. Right. The songs were getting worse. And it, it was, you know, putting, you know, working on them was having, you know, the reverse effect. Instead of the songs getting better, they were starting to now right. get worse as they went along. And we were just like, all right, that's it. We're booking studio time. We're recording these songs, you know, whatever, two weeks. That's it. We're done. <laughs> how did we wind up, how did we wind up uh, making a de- departure from what we had traditionally done as far as drum tracks for Dead Again? How did we wind up going, okay, Johnny's going to play, is going to play in studio. We're going to do it live. Well, I think it was just, uh, I know for me, this was a record that I wanted to play on. You know, some of the stuff, you know, of course, you know, of course you want to play on it. But um, it just seemed like, you know, this was, you know, the point is like, you know, where we were as a band and, you know, what we were doing, what the, what the material was, you know, how the songs were coming along. It, it, the songs themselves lent themselves better to, you know, to a live setting. Right. Because you know, the record has more of a more jam element and it. it's more, there's more playing, I guess on the record. Right. You know, the songs have more playing in them. So it just seemed like, it just seemed logical to, you know, to go that way. I think it's uh, Trippin' a Blind Man. Is Trippin' a Blind Man on Dead Again? Yeah. Yeah. That's the song that, that's the song that the first time I heard it, I went, oh man, this is a different typo negative. This is cool. Yeah, we were just angrier and older. Angry old man. <laughs> See, that's that that to to me that's that's the typo negative sense of humor, you know that I, I think comes out with all four of you guys. You know, it might be that that kind of thing. I I think is it's, it's I guess you know part of it is like yeah we're always sarcastic and very self deprecating. Right. We all come from we come from a blue collar area, and you know like this kind of this kind of stuff like you know like whatever playing music it's not like. You know, you really can't take yourself too seriously. You have to have, I, I've always seen it that way. You have to have a certain amount of, you know, you have to have a sense of humor about yourself. Right. It's not like we, we were working on a cure for cancer or AIDS or something like that. You know? <laughs> we're just playing music. Right. And 
musicians really shouldn't be in the art of taking themselves too seriously. And we, a lot of that stuff, we we just didn't have, you know, we didn't have the time for it or the patience. And you, know, you, you could just, you could read right through people when they were full of themselves, were full of crap, and you know, all right, you know, good for you. <laughs> take it somewhere else because there's no place for it here. Does that? Uh, I want to talk. I want to talk about one more thing. Being a dad, your uh, your daughter just graduated eighth grade recently, right? Yeah, yeah, she just started, started as a freshman. Yeah, <laughs> nice. So, you know, does that does that sense of humor, you know, that what you you said, self deprecating kind of sense of humor and little lighthearted way of looking at the world, yeah. does that does that transfer over into Johnny Kelly in his personal life as a dad? You know, how do how do you see? I try how, not to be. I try not to be self deprecating when I'm being a parent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's just opening the door for them to just walk all over. Right. <laughs> you know, but, uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of sarcasm, and my girls definitely picked up on it at an early age, and I'm paying for it in stage now. Right. So do they see yeah. Do they see you as dad, the rock star, or just dad, that guy's a dork, don't talk to him? You know what I mean? Uh, a little bit of both. A little bit. My daughter, you know, like, yeah, she's she's a trip. Yeah, she she thinks I'm completely out of touch with the with the world. <laughs> yeah, but I'm funny. I'm funny, and I can fix things. <laughs> nice. Yeah, but if like you know, like if I talk to her about like a like her 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 dance, like the whatever the, the middle school dance at the end of the year, and she was like uh, with a you know with I guess her date. If I bring if I mention the boy's name. Forget it. There's hell to pay. Like I, what was it? Just recently, I was like, "Hey, did you did you speak to that? Have you spoken to that guy at all?" You know, whatever. Oh, Dad, will you stop it? <laughs> I'm like, I'm just asking if you spoke to him after the dance. <laughs> uh, my stepdaughter, she's a little bit more impressed with it. You know, she's into you know, she got into you know, rock and roll and metal and stuff. And right. She's you know, she's constantly hitting me up to go to shows. And, she really loves bands like, uh, you know, Black Veil Bride, Oceanless and White, things like that. Right. So if I tell her, yeah, you know, I, I met these guys. Oh, you did? Really? Ooh, can you get me an autograph? Blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> the, you know whatever. This band's coming. You know, they're playing Starland, you know, next month. Can we go? <laughs> and uh, But, yeah, for the most part, yeah, I'm, I'm dead. At least I try to be. You know, it's, it's definitely a big, uh, I guess for both of us, you know, it's a learning, learning process. And you... A lot of times I'm just going by the seat of my pants and trying to, you know, do the best that I can for them and try to be, you know, try to be the voice of reason and, uh, you know, try to keep them on the, you know, the right path and things like that. But yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sarcasm and a lot of, yeah, (laughs) a lot of deadpan humor. But it's great though, because like, you know, even though they're young, they get it. So it's, it's fun. If, if one of them decided to, you know, dad, I'm going to go into music. I'm going to try, I'm going to try to make it, I'm going to try to make a run of it. Is there anything you would say, would you try to dissuade them or would there be any particular piece of advice you would really want to get them clued in on? You know, what would you tell them? I would definitely, I would definitely try to dissuade them. Why? Because, uh, because now there really isn't a music business anymore. It's it's like, you you want to see it. You want to see your children do well and you want them to go into a field where they, where they can be successful. And I don't, I don't see that as I don't see it as 
uh, even though like the, the odds of, I guess, you know, quote unquote, making it was such a long shot to begin with, I don't see, there was still back then, there was still a shred of opportunity. Right. You know, there was something on the other, you know, on the other side of the rainbow. There's nothing there now. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of bands, and we were just talking about this, you know, a bunch of friends recently. It's like, you know, rock and roll, it seems like it had a good summer. A lot of bands were touring, a lot of them, you know, a lot of shows didn't bell, you know, things like, you know, ACDC Song Stadiums, Van Halen's on the road, uh, uh, but a lot of those bands are old bands. Mm-hmm. Not old, like, you know, not in a, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, pick on it or, like, you know, insult it in any way, but those bands have been around for a long time. There really isn't any new group of bands. There isn't anything coming up to replace them, you know? Like a, a, the Mayhem Festival didn't really do well this year, but even that, like, you know, you're talking about bands that have been around, King Diamond Side, they've been around for 30 years. You know, who's, what core group of, you know, bands is coming up to replace those? You know, which band, like, can somebody tell me now, which new band is going to be playing stadiums five years from now? Headlining stadiums like, like ACDC is, or like, you know, you know, without it being a package, Where's, where's like, you know, the next Metallica? Where's the next Guns N' Roses? Who is it? You know, who's making that kind of impact on rock and roll in this day and age? There isn't any. You know, Avenged Sevenfold is doing well. They're doing okay. But even that, it, they got in, <laughs> you know, they, they got into the club right before everything went down the toilet. Right. You know, like, what band, like, what new band is coming out now? Well, what kind of, even what kind of music is like, you know, and rock and metal and stuff like that, that's going to be able to take over for one of these other bands. You know, ACDC can't tour that much longer. (laughs) Maybe tonight's the night we die. Take a look to the endless sky and let your fears all slip away. What good are they anyway? Maybe you know it's only you and me. Hello, Music the Lifeblood listeners. Do you want to help the show? Head over to Patreon.com to donate to Music the Lifeblood so you can keep Music the Lifeblood rocking and receive some badass perks. That's www.patreon.com backslash Music the Lifeblood. And as always, you can find Music the Lifeblood on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see all the posts from the guys, including Dustin's Vinyl Thursday videos. Don't forget, Metal Chris and Dustin love seeing your ratings and reviews on iTunes. Music the Lifeblood, something old, something new. What are you listening to? Hey!